This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Lauren Hilgers discusses her new book, Patriot Number 1, American Dreams in Chinatown. Then PW Senior Midwest Correspondent Claire Kirk explores changes at the AWP. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we've got a new number one in hardcover fiction. Uh, Clive Kostler and Graham Brown collaborating on The Rising Sea, a novel from the NUMA Files. Uh, our review says that indefatigable bestseller Kostler shows no signs of flagging in his 15th NUMA Files novel. Uh, he has been writing these, I think, since before I was born. Uh, this one is an adventurous mix of archetypal mysterious substances, futuristic techniques, technology, ancient legends, and global ecological disaster. Uh, We say that uh, there's a far-fetched ending involving some androids attempting to assassinate the Prime Minister of Japan, but uh, otherwise... Readers are deep in Kessler territory, and the water's fine. All right. So if uh, if you have been following his career for the last many decades, then, uh, you know, you will just keep up with it. Uh, No reason to stop now. At number eight, we have The Flight Attendant by Chris Bajalian. Uh, this one opens with uh, a woman who's used to waking up in strangers' beds after getting blackout drunk, but one morning she awakens in a sumptuous Dubai hotel suite to find blood-soaked sheets and the dead body of the American hedge fund manager that she met on her flight over. And the assassin who executed the man already regrets sparing her life. Oh, wow. So it's a killer right. setup, and we say that Bojalian initially maximizes the dual plot lines, uh, where uh, the Cassie tries to stonewall investigators, um, while the assassin methodically closes in for the kill. Uh, and then, uh, at the right at the very end, the author unceremoniously detonates a plot bombshell, and there's an, a, a frenetic, exciting, but not especially convincing sprint to the finish. But Bojalian's fans will still have fun right. with it. Good. And uh, just below that, at number 11, Caribbean Rim by Randy Wayne White. Uh, We say that this is a diverting, if sluggish, novel, the 25th in the Doc Ford series, and it focuses on an unlikely couple. Uh, They have a chance meeting, and one is an unhappily married college professor, and uh, the other is a former student of his. And they have an affair, and then set off to the Bahamas in search of treasure. And uh, there's violence, danger, risk, excitement. And we say many readers will enjoy the boating and fishing lore, but others will wish that Doc and friends had done less talking in between the action scenes. So 
Wow. Not, not, so not as much dialogue they want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not quite not quite as zippy as some right. thriller fans might like. And finally, at number 19, Sometimes I Lie by Alice Feeney. Uh, we say almost nothing is as it initially appears in BBC News veteran Feeney's bold, if overambitious debut, A Serpentine Tale of Betrayal, Madness, and Murder about uh, a radio show presenter who is in a coma, body unresponsive but mind alert, who's trying to figure out what happened to her and whether it has anything to do with her husband, who is the primary suspect. Uh, we say that Pifini pats the final 60-odd pages with a series of head-spinning and, in some cases, head-scratching plot twists, and readers will be left wondering exactly what happened and how much of Amber's account they can believe. We say Feeney is definitely a writer to watch. Right, great. And that's what's happening in hardcover fiction. Lots of thrillers, lots of excitement. Well, over on nonfiction, we do have a new number one as well, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. This is by Michael Isakoff and David Korn, and this is their account of how American democracy was hacked by Moscow as part of a covert operation to influence the U.S. election and to help Donald Trump gain the presidency. Trump again, number eight, uh, Killing the Deep State, The Fight to Save President Trump by Jerome Corsi. Uh, and this is a kind of a uh, call to arms uh, in ways to see how people can keep President Trump in the presidency for another four years. Number nine, don't bullshit yourself. Crush the excuses that are holding you back. This is by John Taffer. Uh, and this is a guide to getting what you want in life and business and stop making excuses so you can get back winning, and that's their tagline right there. And then at number 17, The Way of Abundance, A 60-Day Journey into a Deeply Meaningful Life by Anne Boskamp. This is from Zondervan, and this is the one we do have a review of. Boskamp expands on her last book, The Broken Way, to help readers overcome loss and confront suffering through 60 helpful devotionals. We say she ends each devotional with two questions that spark initiative and action. How are you handling your whole self, your whole broken self, and Giveness and how are you spending yourself to pay attention to joy? And that's what we have at number 17. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lauren Hilgers tells us about the life of a Chinese political dissident turned American immigrant. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Lauren Hilgers on the line. Her new book is Patriot Number One, American Dreams in Chinatown. Hi, Lauren. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So you follow the journey of, uh, let me see if I get this pronunciation correctly, Zhuang Leong, who made powerful enemies in the Chinese village of Wukong when he organized protests against corrupt officials uh, and was with his wife, uh, Little Yan. Tell us about them. So I met Zhuang Lehong in 2013. Uh, I lived in China from 2006 to 2000, end of 2012, and, and I had started visiting Wukong in 2012. And I, um, I had met him in the kind of aftermath of this explosive protest that had not only overtaken this village, but it really had become... Um, sort of a celebrated cause among democracy activists in China. And Zhuang had been elected in the aftermath of the protest. Part of the uh, agreement that, that they had come to with the government was that they could elect their own village leaders. And Zhuang had been elected 
and he had already quit by the time I met him. So he had played a role in starting these protests. He had played a role in kind of forming this village government. And now he was feeling very pessimistic about the future of the village. And I kept visiting the village over that year. I think the last time I I went was in 2014 and got to know him really well. And I got to know his family. And he was a really extraordinary person. He was someone that people really listened to and he had a lot of respect in, in the village. And at the same time, he was really bombastic and idealistic. And he, he smiled a lot and he laughed a lot, even when he was telling these stories about persecution. So I, I had become attached to him early on before anything, before he came to the United States, before the story sort of changed. So tell us about this village, Wukong. I mean, uh, describe it to us physically, how big it is, uh, and and where in China exactly is it? So Wukong is on the coast of southern China in Guangdong province. It's got, at the time, it had about 10,000 people living in it. And it doesn't look like a rural village exactly. It's kind of on the outskirts of China's big manufacturing boom. So there's just up the road, there's a pretty big, dusty city that's kind of encroaching on Ukan's land. And there's not that much farming going on anymore. There's a lot of fishing still happening on the bay. Um, but there's also a lot of money coming in from people who left and have been migrant workers in other cities in China. So there's a lot of kind of half-built houses that are going up. And all the houses have the same sort of concrete box format. They're about three stories high. And that's what you come back and build when you've made good outside of the village. And most of the young people have left. It's a pretty old village. And a lot of the older people that are still there, they they gamble a lot on the streets. So you'll hear the sound of dice hitting metal bowls when you walk through the village. Hmm. It's very evocative. How did you end up there? And you said you were mostly in Shanghai. So what brought you to Wukong? Well, the, the protest that happened at the end of 2011 was really a big deal. There were a lot of protests like this going on in villages about land grabs, but it was hard for the media to get access to them. Mm. And and this protest was also particularly, there were three of them over a period of months, and then the last one, it, the village had blockaded itself off. It was quite striking. So there were like logs and brush thrown on the road, and on one side were villagers, and the other were armed police. And it got out. This village is really close to Hong Kong. Journalists were sneaking in. So it was a big deal. And then because they were granted elections, people started saying, well, maybe this is a sign of liberalization. Maybe this is a, a guy. This is people can follow Ukan's example and other villages can start agitating for their own elections. Um, maybe this is sort of the first domino to fall. And so what I, my intention originally going to Ukan was to write about how these villagers, most of whom had very little education and they had no experience running a village before and there wasn't much, nobody was really helping them out. There was not, not much in the way of guidance how they were doing administrating this village. 
And then you ended up with the story of Zhuang and his wife um, coming to America. So how did they leave behind this place where um, he had a fair bit of power and influence and uh, end up going somewhere thousands and thousands of miles away? Well, he got scared, I think. He had been, during the final protest in 2011, he had been thrown in jail and along with some other village leaders. And so he'd really kind of experienced there were consequences, there could be consequences. And when I got, when I started going to the village, it was becoming clear that when there wasn't so much media scrutiny, um, when, without kind of, without the spotlight on the village, local leaders, people who had been involved with the, the corrupt land sales, had no intention of letting this work. They had no intention of returning land to the village. Um, and they were really pretty annoyed, I think, with how much noise and, and how embarrassing it had been for them that the villagers had risen up and become this media sensation. And so Zhuang had that sense before most people, I think. When he first told me he was thinking of escaping China, I thought, well, the situation's not that bad. And mm. some of the other people that were serving on the in among the village leaders felt the same. They didn't think the situation was quite so bad. But then um, Zhuang made the decision to flee. He managed to get a passport and joined a tour group going to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, over Spring Festival, which usually happens with Lunar New Year. It happens January, February. And planned to ditch the tour group and come to New York. And right after he came, a few of his friends, a few of the people that had, had been protesters were arrested. So he was, it turned out that he was right. So about how old is, is he and his wife? And, and they also um, have a son. Tell us about that. Um, so he now is, he was born in 1983 and um, what does that make him now? He was 30 something when he came over. So he's in his 30s. 35. And Lil Yen is 35. So Lil Yen is um, then now 32 or 33. She's a few years younger. And they had, when they left, they had an eight-month-old baby that they left with her parents that live in another province, another another village, which is pretty common among Chinese immigrants in the U.S. It's fairly common to leave your infants behind to be taken care of by grandparents while you kind of figure things out in the United States. And one of their early struggles was trying to get some kind of status in the U.S. so they could apply for him to come over. And by the time he came over, he was three and didn't know them anymore. He'd lived, you know, most of his life now without his parents. I can understand the practicality of that, but it also sounds really heartbreaking. It really surprised me at the time. And then as I began to explore flushing with him and started to meet other immigrants, I realized it was pretty common to leave your children behind. And some people leave their kids behind until they're 10, 10 or 11, even. They wait until they can go to school in the U.S. Hmm. Just because life as an immigrant is so hard and you work such long hours, that the feeling is it's, it's better to leave your kid behind to China. 
So they moved to uh, to Flushing, Queens. Um, describe to us the community there mm-hmm. and how they ended up in Flushing. Well, John had researched online before he came, and he had kind of identified Flushing as a place that was full of Chinese immigrants. People would speak the language, and it was far away from Manhattan, so he thought that it would be cheaper to live there. So when he got, he came to my house first. He came to Brooklyn, and he said on the first day, I want to go to Flushing and find a place to live. And I had been to Flushing before to eat Chinese food, but I didn't know much about the neighborhood. So I was really exploring it alongside him. And one of the first things we sort of figured out is that there's a lot of informal housing in Flushing. And most of the apartments, particularly that are affordable for someone like Zhuang and Little Yan, are shared apartments. So that first day in Flushing, we started looking at advertisements in the back of newspapers and calling them and finding out that the bathrooms were shared and the kitchens were shared. And what you really got was this little room in a house or an apartment that you shared with other people. Hmm. And so it was, it was a pretty interesting, it was all in the first couple of days, you sort of had to learn very quickly and they had to learn very quickly. And I was sort of learning alongside them. And at the same time, and it was very, like, there is this network, there's employment networks, there's housing networks, there's Chinese groceries. But for Zhuang and Little Yan, when they first settled in Flushing, it was very isolating. They, you know, just getting around, taking buses um, was so hard that they, they tended to stay close to their, the room that they had rented. So it was it was a weird combination of finding your community and also being completely alone. So they moved, both he and his wife moved there together. They, uh, mm-hmm. they lived there for a while. What did he end up doing? Zhuang um, has gone through a, a number, especially early on, he went through a number of different uh, jobs. It was very difficult to find a job. And he, he, you know, he'd come from being a very important person in his village, and all of a sudden he was a nobody. And he really didn't want to take a menial job and work 12 hours a day. He wanted to have an actual life. So he had a hard time sort of accepting his situation. And he cycled through a bunch of schemes and jobs. And finally, now he's driving Uber, which works out pretty well for him. And what about their son? Kaiser came over and... Is doing much better. He it was a the watching the transition for him was incredibly heartbreaking because he didn't know his parents and he spoke kind of a dialect, so it wasn't you couldn't always understand him. And he would sort of at night when he was going to bed, he would cry or he was trying not to cry. Um, and he over the first couple of months, he started calling them mom and dad and um, adjusted. Slowly, and now he's going to he's he's going to this year he's been going to pre-K at a school that uses it's all English, and it's slow, but he's started to be able to speak English. You can see you can sort of see a future in which he's doing all of the translating for his mom and dad. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lauren Hilger's author of Patriot Number no. 1, American Dreams in Chinatown. So one of the things you get into in the book, um, we said in our review that you don't sort of paint it as this immigrant horror story. You just talk about a, a husband and wife trying to settle into their new life and that Zhuang was a more of a dreamer and Lil Yan uh, was not always very patient with that. So tell us about those tensions between them. That was something I found really interesting and educational watching them. And also, as I spoke to other immigrants, I, I found that a, a lot of people had had similar experiences sort of along those gender lines. Little Yen was very, Little Yen would say that, you know, she's not very special. She always expected to have a hard life. She didn't have any pride to lose, mm. like Zhuang did. And, and it was because she was a woman. Women don't have space to have these dreams and these ideals. You have to take care of your family. You have to be practical. And so she really, pretty quickly, they were they stayed inside for a couple, I mean, it was also very cold and they were from Southern China and they'd you know, never seen snow before. So it took them a while. Um, but she got a first job at a nail salon and sort of just kept going after that. She just tried to take each subsequent job she tried to make a little bit better than her last but Mm. she was working long hours she was you know she would get headaches from the fumes from from doing nails and she just kept on doing it she's in my she's a very impressive person she's this sort of tiny diminutive person who will tell you that she's not special over and over again and yet she kind of kept this family going in the four years since they've gotten here what brought you to shanghai in the first place you said that you uh, moved there in 2006 that's what i um i was 26 i had been working for uh, like a little local newspaper in los angeles and i wanted to go somewhere i spoke a little mandarin so I picked up and moved. I sort of, I had a theory that it, I had, didn't have a dog yet. So but this was like maybe the last time in my life where I'd be free to just pick up and leave. So I moved to Shanghai and started freelancing. It was almost just coincidence that you just happened to... It was a to- little bit coincidence. I I picked Shanghai because I spoke some Mandarin. I, I knew one person that was living in the city. And it was, it also helped that it costs less to live in Shanghai. So if you were going to start out trying to freelance, China was not a bad place to do it. So uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the people in, 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 in the book who make appearances in it. Once Zhuang and Little Yan had moved to Flushing, and I, I realized that I wanted, what I was writing was a book. I wanted to kind of expand and and talk about the community as a whole. And it was hard to do that with just Zhuang and Little Yen because particularly Zhuang is so um, 
specific. He has this very specific background. He's kind of an extraordinary person. So, and they were very isolated. So I spent a lot of time just kind of wandering around the neighborhood and trying to meet people. And as their community expanded, I found a few people that could really talk about what it was like to be an immigrant, could tell their own stories and had thought sort of deeply about the experience. And one of those was a man named Tang Yuan Jun, who had, in 1989, he wasn't at Tiananmen Square, but he had led sort of protests in support of the students Mm. and had become a political target and had been in and out of jail and he had escaped and he came to the U.S. in 2001 and he had actually rented a boat and swam the rest of the way to Taiwan from from mainland China and he had been he was sort of this he had been a democracy activist for forever and had been in the U.S. for long enough to sort of know the ropes and, and be practical and realistic, and yet he still continued protesting and continued sort of agitating for democracy in China. And he, Zhuang met him early on, but they didn't really become friends until later. So I spent a lot of time with Tang Yuanjun on my own and got to know, he, he runs a democracy office in Flushing and sort of got to know that community and that scene. There's a lot of people coming in and out, and he really became this voice of, of what Zhuang might be, you know, 10, 10 years down the line. Hmm. Yeah, I can and see that. I also, yeah, um, because little Yen's experience seemed so different than Zhuang's, I also wanted to find someone who was more in her world than in Zhuang's world, who wasn't a democracy protester. And that's how I met Karen, who Karen, I met in a night class that little Yan was taking and Karen was very young and she had only been in the U S I think six months longer than little Yan, but she had thought really hard about what it meant that she was in the U S what she needed to succeed and what she needed to, to feel good about her, her life in the U S. And so she was just a great person to spend time with because she could articulate all of these things that I kind of observed, but hadn't put words to it sounds like you were very focused on telling women's stories and maybe telling the more domestic stories, not just the sort of exciting, the flight of the, the political refugee kind of headline grabber. Yeah, definitely. It was something that it came, it was something that was unexpected and, and, and something that I, I sort of, it became clear very quickly that Lillian and, and Zhuang are, are very different people and that the experience that she was having, she felt, was dictated by her gender. And you met, you would, I ended up meeting a lot of women that were very like Little Yen, who were working incredibly hard to support their families and had sort of had this sense of, there's a term in Chinese, eating bitter, that kind of, it means an ability to endure hardship. And a lot of these women sort of prided themselves on the fact that they could eat bitter and that they were continuing to work these long hours and supporting their families and, you know, really holding up the entire community. So what was the inspiration for this book? When, at what point did you know that you had a book out of this experience? Um, I, so when I was, I was very much in love with Wukan, the village, but it wasn't, it wasn't really practical to try and write a book about it. It was just a magazine article. 
And then when Zhuang came, it was such a kind of, it happened very suddenly. I wasn't expecting it. So it took me about, it was probably a year later, a year after he arrived, where I was like, this is, there's so much that you can discuss with this one family. And there's, their lives are so complicated and they sort of twist together China and the U.S. and immigration and the American dream and gender and all of this stuff um, that I, and I, and I had to talk to them about it too, to make sure that they were willing. Um, but it was about a year after they showed up, I realized this is something that I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And it also encompasses all of these things that are important to know about, especially now. And do you have a, I guess, a political goal for this book? Are you trying to educate people? Are you trying to uh, stake out a particular position? You know, I don't, this isn't really a political book. I mean, it is in some, it does address all of these big political issues, but at its core, it's a story about people and, and immigrants. I do think that it's important to think about these individual stories when you're discussing kind of the political undercurrents in the country, when you're talking about immigration, when you're talking about China, it's important to know that, that these things impact individuals and this is how it is to experience it. So while it's not expressing, it doesn't have an argument, I think it its purpose is to educate people on what it's like to live a live life as an immigrant, what the day-to-day problems are, what you have to overcome, and and what your kind of internal battles are. We've been talking with Lauren Hilgers, and you can find her book, Patriot Number 1, American Dreams in Chinatown, in stores right now. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Midwest Correspondent Claire Kirk talks about changes at the AWP, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior Midwest correspondent Claire Kirk is here to tell us all about some big changes at the AWP. Hi, Claire. Hey, hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Nice to uh, talk with you both. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. It's been a while. So tell us what's happening at the AWP. Okay, um, all hell has broken loose at the AWP. And um, it's sort of fitting that such, such dramatic events would take place among writers. Okay. Wow. um, It just somehow seems appropriate, but there are only very few things that um, David Fenza, the former executive director of AWP and the board of trustees of the AWP organization can agree upon. One is that um, the board of trustees of the AWP organization uh, severed its ties with uh, David Fenza, who's been director, executive director since 1995, but he's worked for AWP since 1988. Uh, so, so the the first thing everyone can agree upon is that he that the board severed its ties 
on Sunday, March 11th, inside the hotel uh, in Tampa, where AWP had just wound up the night before. The second thing that everybody can agree upon is that the AWP did not officially uh, announce to its membership that uh, David Fenza had been terminated as executive director until Friday, March 16th, even though as early as Tuesday, March 12th, half a dozen tweets started appearing on the feeds of individuals who do not represent AWP in any capacity, any official capacity. And uh, the wording of their tweets, about half a dozen tweets, is exactly the same wording that appeared on AWP's website and in its own social media feeds on Friday, four days later. So that, those are the only things that everybody can agree upon. So obviously on the on the eleventh, David Fenza was was uh, uh, the AWP uh, let him go. Um, was this something that was expected? Was this a complete surprise? Um, everybody has told me. Every that's something else that everybody uh, can agree upon. Actually, except for the board, so not everybody. Okay, but everybody I've talked to, including people who have spoken to David Fenza afterwards. Uh, They have all said it was completely unexpected, completely out of the blue. But in hindsight, several people told me they should have known something was up. On uh, Wednesday evening, there's a big gala award ceremony that takes place before uh, AWB uh, uh, officially kicks off the next morning. And uh, at the gala award ceremony, one of the board uh, vice presidents gave a, quote, lovely tribute to David Fenza. And uh, my source, that source said, I should have known something was up. That was just very unusual. And then there was a reception that closed down AWP this year as that reception takes place every year. And during the reception, it's a big party and um the outgoing board uh, members all make speeches, and uh, it's very everybody, all the former board members are there, and it's just a big deal. It's, it's a lot of fun. Not as much fun as an ice hockey game, though, Mark. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but this year, apparently, that reception that always closes down AWP was completely in one, one uh, attendee's words, botched. Hmm. There was no food. Uh, the board members were nowhere to be seen. Um, there were no speeches from the outgoing board members. People, uh, Many people who were there told me they were shocked at how badly organized this closing reception was and it, that it was very unusual. And in fact, I, I have been to that reception uh, the last three years when I attended AWP, and yeah, it's it's great. It's a lot of fun. It's like, okay, see you next year, everybody. But um, this year it was just a disaster, and in hindsight, people are saying that the board was, you know, that they were preparing to make this move and to fire David Fenza the next morning, and that must have been what was going on while none of the board members were anywhere to be seen. It seems like the AWP has been thriving. 
I know that was my impression. But then other as many people told me. I just talked with somebody yesterday, and um, who has been exhibiting at AWP since 2000. So he's been there for almost for 18 years, almost 20 years, and he said that it has steadily grown, and um, that the record attendance was in 2014 in Seattle when it was about 14,000 attendees. But that in recent years, since 2014, it has gone down to 12,000 attendees. Like in Minneapolis, it was 12,000. Los Angeles is 12,000. Um, this year in uh, Tampa, my source told me he thought it was fewer people than 10,000, even though AWP told you, Mark, you covered AWP this year, they, their official number is 10,000 attendees. My source said he didn't think so. He also said, as an exhibitor in the book fair, that this year's book fair was very disappointing, that it was kind of deadsville, that it was much less active than previous years, and um, he kept saying it was very quiet. And his concern as an exhibitor is that people were skipping Tampa because AWP has become so expensive since it started uh, being uh, held in convention centers, in, co in conference centers, mm -hmm. rather, that the price has gone up. Uh, the last time it was held only in hotels uh, was, I believe, in Chicago in 2012. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was because in Boston in 2013, it was held in a conference center as well as an adjoining hotel, and that that has pushed up costs. And he, so even though AWP might be thriving, there are some issues about attendance these days. Oh, there are also issues, financial issues, having to do with AWP moved this past year from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, to uh, the University of Maryland in College Park. And so that caused, there were a lot of uh, expenses that were not expected, as well as just the, you know, all the complications that go with moving from one state to another. And um, also during the move, they lost four longtime staff members, including the d development director. So that, that also has affected the AWP's bottom line this past year. Was there any official reason given for the firing, or was it just, we're parting ways and we wish him well? That was exactly what was said. We're parting ways and we wish him well. And I have to say, okay, you, you, you both probably know I'm pretty good at twisting arms and getting information out of people as a reporter. And I cannot get any of those board members to tell me, even off the record, uh, telling I tell them I'm like a priest in a confessional. You can tell me. I won't tell anybody. They are very tight-lipped about this. And I, I did hear some things secondhand uh, and off the, uh, not even off the record, but secondhand that I don't know are true or not, so I won't, you know, mention them. But uh, they're very tight-lipped. David Haynes, the board chair, I asked him, on Sunday, and again, I asked him on Saturday, on Sunday, and again on Monday, because I don't give up it easily, why was David Haynes, I mean, why was David 
Costanza um, terminated, and he refuses to answer me, not even tell me off the record. And then uh, on Monday he said, look, the labor laws have not changed in the last 24 hours. I cannot tell you because of the laws, for because of reasons of legal liability and Mr. Fenza's privacy. Wow. And, and Fenza yeah. is not talking either. And what did you say? And David Fenza isn't talking to you either, isn't... Uh... Oh, my gosh, David Fenza. Uh-huh. Yes. He is talking, but not to me. He is... He it, talked with poets and writers. He gave an interview over the weekend, and it ran after PW's piece, because we're faster than poets and writers. <laughs> it ran after we ran our piece, in which he said, and I had heard this rumored over the weekend, he said on the record that he had been fired in the hotel lobby of the Marriott Hotel. Wow. And the board, of course, is not saying anything, but yes, Mr. Fenza is saying he was handed a letter uh, from the Dean of Arts and Humanities at the University of Maryland because AWP, the organization, whichever university it is affiliated with, the AWP employees are also employed, are actually legally employees of that university. So the Dean of Arts and Humanities uh, handed, uh, was uh, wrote a letter, signed a letter, and that letter was handed to David Fenza in the hotel lobby, is what he says, and that he was not given a reason for why he was terminated. He also said on the record to poets and writers, as well as to other individuals who spoke to me, he said that he was given uh, 30 days severance pay, as well as uh, 30 days uh, more on with his health insurance because as a University of Maryland employee, he is still on a probationary basis because he has just become their employee within the last six months. Right, because so, of the move. Yeah, so it's, and he is, he is saying he has no idea uh, why he was fired. I, I did speak with one source of mine, uh, who has spoken to him, and I asked the source who's very well connected, I said, was a crime committed? Was there any, anything illegal in this, in, in, in his, in his actions? And she said no, hmm. which is what he is saying on the record, that he did nothing wrong. Wow. And what's interesting is his supporters, are being are very vocal and they are contacting me and they are providing me with information they are also uh there's a petition on um one of the those petition websites uh demanding that the board account to the membership for for and be more transparent regarding this action and also to uh there are demands being made in open letters to the board and in petitions that the board provide Mr. Fenza with a better severance package. Uh, I do have to say that Mr. Fenza has come under criticism in recent years, uh, especially around the time of AWP 2016 in Los Angeles when there was a lot of controversy 
over the diversity of panels and inclusion and also accessibility issues with the conferences. So he is not universally beloved, but um, his detractors are not speaking publicly because they don't want to kick somebody who, who is down. Hmm. But I have heard that um, that there, he has his his tenure in recent years has been controversial. So, where do you see this all going from here? Do you think a further explanation is likely to be forthcoming, or are people just going to be stuck wondering? And and what does this mean for the AWP? Who's going to replace him? The, it, those are very good questions, Rose. Um, I think. He's been with the AWP for 29 years, and most of that time he's been the executive director. And maybe it is time for new blood into that organization. Uh, It is a changing world. AWP has changed so much in recent years is what I'm hearing from people. And um, perhaps this this will mark a fresh start for the AWP to move into the 21st century um, but also, there will be, I don't think we'll ever hear the real story. I think the board has taken a vow of silence, and they are holding to it like I've never seen before. And uh, we will never find out the real story unless, unless those board members or uh, others on the, who are privy to the information go public, but it sounds like that won't happen anytime soon. I have heard from people that AWP is going to be held in Portland next year, and everyone I've talked to is very excited that AWP is going to be in Portland, that Portland is uh, uh, just more of a book city. There's more of a literary scene in Portland. I'm sorry, Mark, but that that's what I'm hearing from oh, people, I know that sure. Tampa is your your native, your birthplace, your 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 hometown. But uh, there seems to be a lot of excitement at, at AWP returning to Portland. So it'll remain to be seen whether people will forgive and forget and move on, or whether there will be a continuing uh, simmering controversy over his departure. I, I do think that if they hire an interim director in the near future, that will help things smooth over, and that if they hire a really good, really strong uh, executive director who is more receptive to uh, the issues of diversity and inclusion and um, and accessibility that Mr. Fenza was criticized for, that that will also help AWP heal and move on as an organization. All right, well, Claire, thank you so much for covering that. Um, I, I appreciate that there's only so much that you can say on the record, and uh, I thank you for telling us what you can. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you both again, and happy shoveling uh, snow in New York City. <laughs> thank you so much. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. 
Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another thrilling author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 